We are in Matthew chapter 6. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we started talking about this portion of the Sermon on the Mount having to do with freedom, which is interesting because it's the spot where Jesus starts saying, do not, do not, do not. And we don't associate that with freedom. But because of the way that nature, God's creation works, we are truly free when living truly the way that he calls us to live and intended us for us to live. And that means uh, that freedom involves a sense of authority in our lives, the one that God gives us. And so when Jesus talks about the things that we ought not to do in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he's telling us how we can live truly free. Last week, we talked about stuff and money and how we, Jesus isn't just prohibiting having things. In fact, he's not even prohibiting having money and having stuff. He's saying you can be free from needing these things and depending on these things and being slaves to these things. And this week, he, uh, we'll look at the idea of fear and anxiety, and next week, we'll look at the idea of judgment, how we can be free from those things. Now, um, I talk about them a lot. I have two young kids, and one of the things that my kids are teaching me or reminding me, really, of life is how different fear works for children versus adults. Um, when I was a kid, I was afraid of very different things than I'm afraid of now as an adult. Um, I also probably took joy in very different things that I do as an adult. Um, but one of the ways that you see that is in the things that we dream about. Um, we dream about happy things and we have nightmares about really upsetting things, obviously. I see it with my kids. They've been having a lot of dreams lately. Or my daughter had a dream like a week ago and she said, I had a dream. I was, uh, I was on a unicorn with mom and we were sliding down a rainbow. She, that was an actual, literal dream that my daughter had. She was on a unicorn with her mom sliding down a rainbow. Not with me, of course, because I'm in all the bad dreams, but that was <laughs> like a thing. And I'm like, man, I can't even imagine what it would be like to wake up in the morning and just have experienced that, sliding down a rainbow on a unicorn with Ellie, right? Um, then she, but she also has a lot of nightmares as well. In fact, lately my daughter's been having some really scary dreams and she get, wakes up and she's really upset about them. And uh, my son has them as well. He woke up one day and he told me, he was kind of proud of it. He said, I had a dream last night I was being chased by this really big robot and, uh, and I got really scared. And then I thought, I'm sleeping. And so I kind of closed my eyes and then I woke up and I was in my bed. And he was like kind of proud of it. He overcame the power of dreams, right? And I was like, yeah, that's something you should be pretty proud of. My daughter is not able to do that, unfortunately. She wakes up screaming and she is upset she, or she's just sad. She's really freaked out. And it makes me remember back to when I was a child and I used to really uh, have some pretty scary dreams. I, I think we can all remember what that was like. Even if you don't remember the specific dreams, you remember what it was like to wake up and be really, really freaked out by something, right? By like a kind of, of scary thing that you could barely even wrap your mind around. Um, but what's interesting is as an adult, we still do the same thing, right? We still have some pretty bad dreams. We still have some pretty bad things. We, we have a phrase, the things of nightmares, the stuff of nightmares, right? And that describes something that's so scary to us that you would only experience it in an unreal world of like a nightmare. And through some of the worst dreams I've had, I've, I've lost people, I've experienced things that I would never hope to experience or wish upon my worst enemy. And so you know what that's like, right? To experience that kind of fear and then you wake up and you feel the relief that it's not real, right? It's not happening. What I've recognized through seeing this with my own kids is like I said, how different fear is for adults versus kids. Even the very things that we're fearful of and upset about. I remember growing up as I was thinking back um, on my childhood and thinking of the things that, that went on in my family. I remember my, uh, my, my 
my house, I remember us losing our house one time. Um, uh, well, there was only one time that happened, but I remember us losing our house and, uh, and it being foreclosed on and us having to move out in like a weekend, in like a, in like a week, right? And uh, having to leave. And I remember having to do that. I remember my mom finding a, finding a lump and having to get a biopsy and that it was like a week-long process to figure out what was going on. And her sister had breast cancer and almost died from it. And so it was really, really scary and really upsetting to have to go through that um, for my family. I remember my dad getting laid off and I remember us having to move hours away to go live somewhere else where he got a new job. Now, I remember those things, but I don't remember them being as upsetting to me as they were to my parents, as strange as that sounds. When I was a kid, I had my own set of fears, my own set of things that worried me. As an adult, now, looking back on those things, I go, those are the scariest things. Those are the hardest things, right, that can happen. Those are the things that shake and, and often, like, really are things that you'd wrestle with, the things you wish would never happen. I say this because fear is powerful, And even though it's different for all of us, the things that we're afraid of, the things that we have anxiety over, um, it's a very powerful thing. And Jesus talking to his disciples about that here in this passage that we're going to look at. We're going to kind of take it a couple verses at a time rather than read through the whole thing right away. And I want to read verse 25, which sets the, the stage for it. And Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, therefore... I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus saying to his disciples, don't be afraid. This is one of the most common commands in scripture. Don't be afraid. We don't often think that way. When we think about what are the rules? What does a religious person have to do? What does it mean to be a Jesus follower? Most people wouldn't start with don't be afraid but it's the, most, it's the most abundant command in scripture, right? Uh, and yet we don't often think of it that way. This word here, uh, marin mayo, it means, um, it means stress or concern over things that may happen. This word for anxiety, for fear. So, so he's specifically talking about things that may happen, not things that have happened, not things you're currently experiencing, but the future, right? What's gonna happen? And Jesus is saying to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious Don't fear the things that will happen in your life. And then he gives some very specific examples. Food and drink, your body, your clothes. Now, keep in mind, he's talking to disciples who have left everything to follow him. They've left everything. And these guys were not homeless before this. They left everything to follow Jesus. And he's saying to them, first and foremost, don't worry about food and don't worry about drink which they left their jobs. They left the way that they earned money, the way that they earned. So many of them were fishermen. They actually caught their food. They left that. And he says, don't worry about these things. They aren't the things now that will concern your life, a pursuit of this thing. Don't worry about your body, about clothes and stuff like that. It was hard to not worry about these things following Jesus because where were your clothes gonna come from? Where was your money coming from? Where was your sustenance come from? Following Jesus means a lot, that f- those, those two words, following Jesus. What does that mean? What does that encompass? But above all else, according to Jesus himself directly, what it means to follow him is self-denial, is death to yourself. He describes discipleship and the process of following him as self-death. Now, what he means by that is not physical death because we don't physically die when we follow Jesus, but what we do give up and what does die is our our agenda, basically. The reason that we were living for, 
the goals that we had, the things that were motivating us, the things that were driving us, before that, it was probably these kinds of things. It was, I want food, I want clothing, I want a house, I want these things, I want life to go well. This is the thing that drives me and motivates me. And then when Jesus comes on the scene and says, will you follow me? If you say yes, you're saying that I will let go of that stuff and I will concern myself with you. And that's the thing I'm going to concern myself with from now on. That's a hard thing. Following Christ is ultimately a a, a big step and a big choice. He even says to, to Christians, you should really count the cost. You should really think about what this means. He gives a lot of reasons why it's worth it. But he still says, make no mistake, this involves denying yourself ultimately. So what he's talking to his disciples about is he's saying, these are the things that you're stressed out about, that you're worrying about, I can see. But remember, life isn't about these things. In fact, he says to them very much, he says that exact thing, he says, is life not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You know why he says that? Is life not more than food, the body not more than clothing? Because he's saying to them that very thing. Think about it for a second. Is your life really all just about getting food to feed yourself, getting clothing to put on yourself, getting a roof to put over your head? Is that really all that you're here to do? Is that really all that your life is? You wake up in the morning, you say, I've got to get food in me, I've got to get some clothes on me, and I've got to make sure that tomorrow I have the same things. I go to bed, that was a good day, I wake up, I do the same thing. Is that really life? Is that a life worth living? No, of course not. And so he reminds his disciples, you're stressing about these things, that are not even what really make life, life. Have you ever been around somebody who has everything and they're just miserable? Or has a lot? They will have no reason to have to worry about food or clothing or money or shelter. And yet they're not really happy and they don't really have life. Maybe you've been, in, maybe you've been around a family like that or you walked into someone's house and you're like, wow, this person has everything. They don't have to deal with the stresses and the concerns that I have, that a lot of people have about where my next, you know, about what's going to come down the road or what next year is going to be like. But they're miserable, right? And Jesus is saying, you know, life is more than just having this stuff. Here's why this is important because this is what fear and anxiety do to us. What happens when you get scared, when you get fearful and you get anxious about the things Jesus is talking about, is you stop. That's what you do. You stop what you're doing. You freeze up. And when you get afraid and you get anxious, you just stop and you can't move. You can't go forward. You can't keep going, right? This is what happens. And so what he's saying to them is when you do that, you're saying life stops now. And life is a lot more than those things. So don't let that happen and don't do that. And this is the danger of anxiety and of fear, They rob us from being able to really do and enjoy and appreciate and live the things that we're actually meant to live for. And he goes into more detail about what this looks like when he gives an example of of birds and flowers and things like that. He says this in uh, verses 26 through 30. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you not anxious? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe 
OU of little faith. So, this is exactly where you would expect someone to go when talking about fear. They talk about flowers and, and birds and things like that, right? Probably is where somebody would go if they're trying to calm you down. Just think about flowers, think about birds, think about things like that. But Jesus isn't saying it as a way of escaping, as a way of covering up this thing with happy thoughts. He's saying, no, really think about these things. And he's making a couple of points here. The first point is this, and it's pretty simple. He says, God is taking care of things that he loves less than you that are less important to him than you. I mean, it's a clear order of creation. It's, it's given in the creation. Man's made in God's image. Other things are not, right? And so even in here, Jesus is saying that he cares more about you than these things, and yet look at what they do. Now think about this for a second, right? Uh, what does a flower do? A flower is beautiful, right? Beauty is ultimately utility. Beauty is ultimately uh, something doing what it was intended to do as perfectly as possible. And when it is and when it does that, then that is a beautiful thing. That thing is beautiful. So a flower uh, is beautiful. It shows us the glory of God's creation, the beauty of God's creation. And so when a seed is planted and water comes and the seed germinates and it begins to grow and the nutrients from the soil and the light from the sun and all those things work together to take all that was in this little tiny seed and turn it into a beautiful flower, God does that. And he does it, why? Because he created flowers, why? to be beautiful. He created them to be a part of this beautiful planet that he made. What about birds? Birds go and, and, and they sing and they fly, the very things that express freedom and joy and peace and happiness to us, being able to fly and singing, it's pretty good, right? Pretty happy stuff. But, but all that that these birds do exists because God created birds and created animals to be able to do those very things to be able to exist, to fly and to sing and do what animals do. And that by doing that, and here's the point, they do what God intended them to do. So what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying God made something and then he made sure it could do the thing he intended it to do. He gave it all the power to do that. He created the process by which that seed would grow up into that flower. Birds work really hard. There's a tremendous amount of energy um, being transferred and, and, and changed and things happening with a flower that's growing. There's a lot that's happening. It's not a passive process. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying just chill out, don't do anything, don't think about anything ever. In fact, the New Testament, the whole Bible is full of examples of concern and worry and, and, and care and thought for things that are good. We read about, like, I, I have anxiety over you, the church. Paul says that in the New Testament epistles, right? People have concern for loved ones. They have concern for the faith. They have concern for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> but these things, the birds and the flowers that are not even as important as us to God, our creator, he created them to do something and he made it possible for them to do it. And why that matters is this. He created us to do something. He created us to live and to bring him glory. And he has given us everything we need to bring him glory. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, whatever you have and whatever you will have tomorrow, and whatever you will have every day leading up to the end of this physical life on this earth, you will have been given what you need to bring glory to God and to worship him the way that you have been intended to do. He's given you everything that you need. And you're more important even than these things. So he's telling them God cares for you and he and he, and, he, and he works through you just like his creation and cares for you just like his creation. But the other thing Jesus is saying is this. He's asking a question about fear and about anxiety that, that people have for thousands of years since asked about fear and anxiety. 
It is the question that people ask, which is this. What does it really accomplish? He, he asked that. He says, what, what does it do? How can you add a single hour to your span of life? How does it help you? It doesn't. You lock up and you freeze much of the time, or instead of freezing, you do bad things, right? You react out of that fear. And as a result of that, you, you harm yourself, you harm others, or you ultimately detract from doing the thing God has actually created you to do, which is bring him glory, which comes often through trusting him. So the single most fundamental truth about worry, anxiety, and fear is that it doesn't accomplish anything. Now, you can tell that this is a very personal thing to the disciples because he's speaking directly to them. He's saying, why do you worry about this? Why do you worry about that? In verse 28, he says, he says why do you worry about, uh, why are you anxious about clothing? He's, he's saying this, you can tell, because the disciples have actually been anxious about these things, which makes sense, right? They're following Jesus. He's just walking, doing ministry, traveling from place to place. You can bet sitting around at night, they get anxious sometimes. They go, where's tomorrow's meal going to come from? Yeah, that was, that was amazing, that thing he did with 5,000 people and stuff feeding them, but what about tomorrow night when it's just us? Is Jesus going to take care of it? Where's our next meal coming from? Why isn't he concerned about this like he maybe should be? Where's my next outfit going to come from? I mean, my first outfit's worn okay, but it's starting to get thin. The holes are showing up. Is there another one that's going to come? <coughs> They were really worried about this stuff. These were real concerns. He's not just giving some pre-prepared speech to whoever was willing to listen and it may apply to. He's talking to his friends about the very things that they're stressed about. And he's saying to them, first of all, God will, God will provide for you. Second of all, he's saying, why are you worried? What has it done for you? What does it do for you? Where does it get you? What does it accomplish? Anxiety is not good. It's not caution. It's not carefulness. It's not wisdom. It's not shrewdness. It's not a conservative outlook. Anxiety is fear for what may happen, <clears throat> what will happen. And so it's always bad. That's what he's telling them by saying, how can it help you? How can it add a single hour a day to your life? I have a friend who struggled with anxiety. <clears throat> he was a pastor. He wrote a book on it. In the book, he gave this analogy for anxiety. And if you've ever really struggled with anxiety, like to where it kind of like stops you in your tracks in life and, and, and you have panic attacks or things like that, um, which I've had at times, and he's, he and I were talking about it, he said uh, the best analogy for anxiety that he could give is uh, there's a tiger in the room and it's trying to kill you and eat you. That's it. He's like, it's like you're in a room and there's a tiger in the corner and you, maybe your friend's in the room with you and you go, uh, there's a tiger over there and it's trying to kill me and eat me. And they go, no, there's not. And you go, no, yeah, there is. There's, there's a tiger in the room and it's trying to kill me and eat me. And they go, no, there's no tiger. I, I'm sure that you feel like there is, but I don't see one. They ask, do you see one? No, no, there's no tiger. And you go, well, it's pretty real and it's there and it's going to kill me and eat me if I turn my back on it. Well, just do this. Just, just ignore it. Just ignore it and just keep going, keep moving on to get some work done. So you turn your back and you try to work with a tiger behind you that wants to kill you and eat you. He said, that's how anxiety feels. I told my friends that and they were not very kind because then they kept saying like they saw tigers everywhere when I went through it. They would say that. They'd be like in my office and they'd say, do you see that tiger over there in the corner? But that's what it feels like, <clears throat> especially for people who really struggle with it on a major level. It feels like it's death 
and it wants to destroy you. And so the only thing that you can really think to do is worry about it. I just, all I can do is at least worry. The worst thing, the the most foolish thing I could do is not care and think and worry. And so while others might say, you shouldn't worry, you go, no, I need to worry. I need to keep myself safe. I need to protect myself. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you so much. Everyone's sick. When I was uh, in college, I worked on a ropes course. Ropes course is this brilliant idea somebody came up with to just make people do stuff 50 feet in the air and be terrified. And I went, and <clears throat> I went through the ropes course when I was a high schooler, and, uh, and I was terrified. I mean, I was, the, I was the one that just cried the whole way, cried, sobbed, yelled, said things I shouldn't say, but I thought my life was in danger and I was going to die if I didn't get out of there. And they were like, no, you got to do it, you got to do it. And the whole point of a ropes course, somebody thought this up, is you put people 50 feet up in the air and you make them just do stuff that's not even that hard. You go walk on this log, jump two feet, jump one foot, jump six inches, just take one step from that thing to that thing, but you're 50 feet up in the air. And even though you have a harness on and everything's fine, you're terrified, right? And the whole, the whole point of it, and I loved doing this when I, was, when I was like the person in charge of the ropes course, was you get them up there, and then you go, uh, and then you go, uh, and then they freak out. They freak out when they get up there. And they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And you were the one that made them get up there anyway. They didn't want to do it. And then you're like, no, get up there. You should do it. Really do it. Peer pressure, whatever it takes. They get up there. And then you go, okay, do it. And then they're like crying. Like, I don't want to do it. I can't do it. You're like, well, I got bad news for you. You can't go backwards. And then you, you make up. You make up some rule about how they can't. No, you can't go backwards on the ladder or mess up the ropes or do whatever. So you go forward. I mean, they told us those were the rules, but I kind of was wondering, like, is that really a rule? Because I know that we tell them that, but I don't know. It seems like you should, I mean, if they fall, they could just get down. But they also never did that. And so what you do is you tell them, you say, you have to go. You have to keep going. The only way you're going to get out of this thing is if you keep going forward. And people cry, and they kick, and they scream, and they wail, and they say all kinds of things they regret later, but they get through it. But it's terrifying. It's a matter of life and death. And the whole point of it is to talk to people about fear and about what it means to really trust God in situations where they just seem so scary and dangerous. And then the perspective, really. Why was it dangerous? You were safe the whole time. I had you the whole time. Why? Fear makes us lock up, and it makes us stop. And so the question is, when things happen, when the big things happen, when things happen with homes and money and jobs, when things happen with health and with family and with friends, when things happen, do those things ultimately define us or do they simply describe the circumstances that we're in? And by define us, I mean, is that the reason why everything stops? And you stop, and everything stops, and you go, I can't move forward. I got this diagnosis, and I can't, I, I, I don't even know how to live with this on a day-to-day basis. That's a real issue that we struggle with. And the, the sad thing about fear and anxiety, and Jesus has pointed right to it with his disciples, has said, it won't add a day to your life, it won't have an hour to your life, it won't actually help you. So don't do it. Anxiety is tied to hope. And what it reveals in us is the things that we have hope in. And so it shows us, what is my hope 
in? What is my trust in? Because my, my fear is in not having that thing tomorrow. And if I don't have that thing tomorrow, then I won't have a future tomorrow. If my hope is in my health and I'm not healthy tomorrow, my hope is in my health and I lose it. I freeze up, I lock up, I don't know how to live. Even last week we talked about the idea of really setting ourselves up for this. You amass a bunch of stuff, you say I need this much money, I need this much stuff, you're making it all that much easier for yourself every day afterwards to to freak out about not having all the stuff that you need in order to be okay, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in this world that if they had to live my life today, they would be like miserable because they'd go, I, 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 that's not a good life. That's not enough stuff. That's not enough money. And, and for anyone in this room, there's a lot of people who if they had to live like maybe a normal person would say, no way, never going to happen. In fact, I live in fear of that because of how much they have and how much they've been able to accumulate. And maybe a lot of us, even when we're honest, last week when I'm talking about stuff, you go, man, I remember back when I had like nothing, and I was pretty okay, and now I have a lot more, and I'm still stressed out about that stuff, and maybe not having it. It's because our hope can easily be in the things, and then they cause us anxiety and stress, and Jesus says, it does you no good to have it. So he goes on, and he says this, therefore, do not become anxious, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now what he says here is important. He says to not be like the Gentiles who seek after these things. Why do you think Jesus just decides to throw this group of people out of the bus and use them as an example of something bad? It's not because he's saying Gentiles are bad people. It's because Gentiles are people who don't believe in God for the most part. A Gentile is a person who doesn't have the kind of faith. That's how you refer to someone like that. It's almost sort of like how we would say today an atheist. So he's saying they live for these things because they have to. What else do they have? What else can their hope be in? Why would you choose to live like someone who doesn't have confidence in God? Is what he's reminding his disciples of. And there's a lot of people who I think live as functional atheists. It's like a phrase that describes a person who has all the head knowledge, but it doesn't affect their life really in any way or emotionally affect their heart in any way. So you're actually not ever living in light of the things you believe about God. You say you believe them. You think you even believe them, but you don't actually get to enjoy living a life under a God who says, I've got you. He said the Gentiles live that way. People who don't have God live that way. They have to find a way to live that way. But you have a hope in something else. And so you don't have to have anxiety and have stress like they do. And so he says, we're to pursue the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. What do we worry about? What do we care about? What do we pursue? What do we make the goal? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Pursue the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Think about it like this. 
Let's just say hypothetically that the way you live your life is you have a vision of yourself in the future. The life you want to have. And you say, that's what I'm going for down the road. Maybe, you're, maybe it's easy sometimes in life. Maybe you're getting married, so you think, here's what I want my marriage to look like. Here's what I want my family to look like. Here's what I want my life or my home or my whatever to look like. You begin a career. You say, here's what I want to be, where I want to be, where I'd like to be. You have a mental image of that thing. And that thing is the goal. And then anything that gets in the way of that thing is really difficult because it, we risk not getting that goal, Right? So all Jesus is saying is he's saying, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, then good news. You can just get rid of that. You can take me and you can put me there. And this is where the math gets really weird because I know it doesn't make sense. He says, you put me there. And if I'm there and you go for the next 20 years, my goal is Jesus. My goal is to honestly just follow him the best that I can to seek to live as he would call me to live, to do the things he calls me to do to reach the people he calls me to reach. That if I do that, that somehow the math will add up and it will be good. That's what he says. And that's a very hard thing for us to believe because you know what that requires? That requires faith. Because a person who doesn't have God would say, no, don't worry about that. Just pick something and work towards it and do it. And so what he's saying is seek the kingdom of God, that's what you seek, that's your goal, that's the thing that determines your trajectory because that's what we do. We pick a goal, a sight on the horizon, and we make a straight line for it. And that's how we have any idea how to navigate our lives and live our lives. What to choose to do and what not to do, what to value and care about, how to act, who to be. He says, and all these things will be added to you if you do that. That's a pretty big statement that Jesus makes. If you make me the goal, if you make the kingdom of God the goal, then these things will be added to you. I want to read you something. I, I didn't put it up on the, I'm not going to put it up on the slide. It's in Matthew 25. I'm not going to put it up on the slide because it's just too much and people give me a hard time for why would you put that many verses up on a slide. And, and, um, but I'm going to read it and you can follow along if you want. It's Matthew 21. This is Jesus giving his disciples an account um, of the end times and what will happen at the final judgment. And in Matthew 25, verse 31, he says this. <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you as sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. 
Then you will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is saying here, this is what you should stress out about. He's being pretty vivid about it. He's being pretty specific about it. He's painting a pretty clear picture to say, these are the things that we ought to be concerned about. Is come the final judgment, where are we? And there are points where Jesus talks about people who say, there are other accounts of this where Jesus talks about people who say, but I did all these good things in your name and all these great religious things and I thought I was a believer. And he says, no, you weren't, not truly. And then he says the most painful thing that any of us could ever hear and will ever hear. Some people will hear this. A lot of people, most people will hear this. Away from me, I never knew you. And he says here to those on his left, depart me, you curse into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What we see here is that it's, it's to say, I desire to follow Christ. I desire to truly be righteous, to seek his righteousness. It's not a, a simple thing. But as we live our lives out in trying to do it, he calls us to live a certain way and do certain things and behave certain ways towards people. And so we ought to read things like this and say, this is really the thing about tomorrow that I should be worrying about. That's what Jesus tells us. He says, in terms of worrying about tomorrow, thinking about tomorrow, thinking about things like that, think about this. This is what you need to be concerned about. Now, the other thing we read about here, and you have to think about it, is this. Imagine you're standing in this line of people. And imagine you just watched Jesus say to the person in front of you, you're cast into the fire eternally, I never knew you. Now imagine you turn around and look at that line behind you and imagine that you see people that you knew here, people in your family, people who are your friends, people who are your neighbors. Imagine that you see those people and you think they're about to hear what that person just heard and I could have told them and I could have prepared them and I could have said something or done something more than I had done. Because now it's too late, right? These are the things that Jesus says are our priorities when we seek his kingdom, when we seek him first. We are to essentially live this out as real as we can. We are to, instead of having fear, have courage. I was meeting with a bunch of pastors last week in Salem um, for churches in our conference, and we were talking about evangelism. And, and, and wanting to do more evangelism and just wanting to see more people come to know Jesus and what's gotten in the way of that in the past and what can we do differently in the future and what do we do as pastors in leading the way for that and the thing that came up again and again and again as we were talking and we were convicted of what we need to do and what our churches need to do was simply courage. It kept coming up and I felt it personally. I felt this need, this thing to say we have to have courage and not be afraid. So to actually live the way Jesus calls us to live takes more than anything, I believe, courage, that kind of faith, to do the things that he calls us to do, to step out at times, because eternity is at stake. And for many of us, we're like, I am trying really hard to do all that stuff, and I am still really anxious, and I am still really stressed out, and I can't ever seem to do enough, or know enough, or do the right thing, or say the right thing, or see anything come of it, and I'm a mess. And to you, I would say this, and this is Jesus talking to someone else. In Luke 10, it says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. 
And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is the same word used in our passage, anxious. It's possible to even be anxious and stressed out, to be fearful when trying to pursue righteousness. And for, for, for Martha, what he says to her, Martha, Martha, is he says, sit at my feet, basically, as your sister's doing, because here I am. And for many of us, what we need with anxiety and with fear is we need to simply say, I need to be with Jesus, because that's really where courage comes from. It doesn't come from just trying to go be the most religious person I can try to be. It doesn't come from getting rid of all the things in life, from living like a monk and saying, I'm going to turn everything down, because you'll still deal with the fear. But it comes from just being with Jesus. And for many of us, that's hard, because how do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with fear? How do we deal with stress? We try to get away from it, or we try to cover it up with something. We try to mask it with something. We try to distract ourselves from it with something. And what Jesus is saying here is you need me. Like, I'm the one. Stop being so anxious, so stressed out. You have me. And I feel like this is probably the point where I should give the disclaimer that there are a lot of things that we need to do to deal with stress and anxiety. That, unfortunately, in the church, over, over, over years and years and generations and generations, I'm sure people have made people with anxiety and depression and fear and things that come from from all sorts of issues that have to really be treated and, and dealt with by professionals and counselors and medicine and things like that as like, no, that's just a matter of faith. And that's not true. You know, when, when, I, when I learned some of the most important lessons I learned about this, it was on anxiety medication that I needed uh, because I woke up at 2 a.m. every morning and had a panic attack and there was no way to stop that until they said, just, just you need something to give you a break. So I, I say that because it's easy for us to misconstrue when we talk about fear and anxiety and go, oh, so what you're saying is, is if we just sat at Jesus' feet enough, just prayed enough, if we just tried enough, then nobody would have anxiety and depression and any other fear that comes with that. And that's not, that's not everything. But it is true that Jesus shows us that fear and that anxiety are never good things. And so when we see them in ourselves and we see them in each other, then the question is, how do we help each other with this thing that is not good? Because like I said, it is not wisdom. It is not being conservative and wise and shrewd and discerning and thoughtful, good planning. It's fear. It's anxiety. That's what it is. And so Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is saying something that is so profound. He is saying this. It bears no explanation. Today's hard enough. Don't add tomorrow onto it. Worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. Why does he say that? Because the reason fear and anxiety stop us is the weight of the future. It's like you're, you're walking along and you go, I can't just think about today because I know about tomorrow. And I add the weight of that onto myself today. And then there's the next day and I add the weight of that and then the next day and then more and then more and 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 more. 
and it weighs so much, and it's so heavy, the weight of the future, that I just can't even move under it. And so Jesus is walking, and he says, hey, where'd you go? You're following me, and I can't move. I can't move because I stopped thinking about today, and I started thinking about tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And he's saying tomorrow has enough, today has enough of its own trouble. If you add tomorrow's trouble, that's a lot of weight you can't handle in one day. I mean, essentially, we're not meant to handle more than one day's worth of trouble. This is where the math does add up, and it's pretty easy to understand. So take it a day at a time. And so the solution isn't to numb it with other things, to escape it, to distract ourselves from it, or to try to make decisions in our lives so that we won't be afraid of it down the road. The truth is to take it one day at a time, to pursue his righteousness, to take courage in who Jesus is, and to say that God has given me enough to be who, I have cre- who he has created me to be and to do what he has created me to do, just like he has the flowers and just like he has the birds. Now, here's the part that I find so encouraging personally as somebody who has a lot of fear often, somebody who's dealt with a lot of anxiety, and as I'm sure we're all thinking, it's found in the pages of 1 Samuel. Um, I was a part of a church that was going through 1 Samuel for months and months and months, so long that I got kind of tired of 1 Samuel, I'll be honest. It was like six months of 1 Samuel. You're like, just give us a king, you know, just let's see David. He's like the star, right? And he didn't come to like the end, and it was kind of frustrating. But we're in this study, and as we're in this study, my life's falling apart, really just from fear and anxiety. And I'm reading about, in the early pages, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, in chapters 7 and 8, about how hard the Israelites have it. The Israelites get a tough break. Things are not that easy for them. Going into the promised land, it wasn't exactly empty, it turns out. The promised land wasn't just empty, with like a bunch of empty houses that people could just move right into and live in, right? Uh, God actually said, go into the promised land, and some of it will be empty, but some of it you will displace other people. And so as they went into the promised land, they from day one had enemies. They had people saying... I want this land back. I want this place back. Pushing in at the borders, wanting to fight them. Then they had other people who just wanted to fight them because kind of everybody often wanted to fight other people. There were always groups of people that wanted to conquer more and have more and dominate more people and then be in charge of them and their resources and their land. And so the Israelites are constantly living under attack or in fear of attack. And frankly, sometimes the things that the people wanted to do to them, death was the best option. Because, you know, to have your family split up and your children taken into slavery and your spouse taken into slavery over here and then you go over here and then one member of the family's killed, that was often what they were, what they were dealing with, what they were afraid of. And so they're constantly coming to God and, and God is coming back to them and God brings them Samuel, this prophet, and he, and, he, and he speaks to them and prophesies to them. But the people say to Samuel again and again and again, would God just give us a king? We just want a king. We want somebody who will come, that we can see, who will come, and who will lead us into victory, and who will judge us in all these things. And God says to them again and again, you don't want a king, through Samuel, you don't want a king. So he has Samuel go to them in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, and he says to them, here's all the things that a king will do that you're not thinking about. 
It's going to take your money. It's going to take your kids and bring them into war. Where do you think he's going to get those soldiers from? It's going to be your children, right? He's going to do all these things. He's going to need you like God doesn't need you. This is one of the things that people don't realize. A king needs people. Otherwise, he's not a king, right? So he needs them to be a certain way, and he needs the government to be a certain way. And ultimately, he's going to live in wealth. He's going to have all the things that he needs, and that will never quite be the case for anyone else. Whereas our God is a God who doesn't need from us which makes him the best king that we could ever have. And so Samuel comes and he tells them all these things, and here's the response. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Here's what's so incredible about this. They come to God in absolute fear and terror, saying, give us, and what is their reason? That we may also be like all the nations. That's their reason for wanting a king. They say, what does everyone else do in this situation? They get a king. They have a king. We're the only group of people that don't. We're supposed to trust in God. And so for that reason alone, they say, give us what everyone else has, and then we'll be okay. We won't have to be afraid. We won't have to fear anymore. We'll even take his judgment. We want him to judge us, not just to lead us into army, in, in, in a victorious battle. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king. He gives them what they want, and he continues to be their God. And this is why I find it so encouraging because I'm always afraid, is that God says, even though he tells us more than any other thing in scripture, don't be afraid, that when we are afraid, he says, I will still go with you. I will still be your God. I don't expect you to perfectly be unafraid. And so he tells his people, he says, I'm going to be with you, but it's not going to be as good because of this thing that you want. And so his message to us is, when you, have, when you are filled with fear, when you are terrified, trust me, don't think that other things will take that away from you. But when you can't trust me, I want to still go with you, but it won't be as good. And then every step of the way that we let go and that we trust God, every step of the way that we recognize through what we're going through, through our life, through our entire life, I really can trust God with that. I really can trust God with that. This thing doesn't give me confidence. This thing doesn't provide the safety net I thought it does. There isn't hope here. God's right there. And we then have more of him because we trust him even more. I think this is very important because ours is a God who pursues his people and says, I'll continue to go with you even when out of your fear you choose something less than me. I find that so encouraging, that he doesn't abandon us, he doesn't give us over to our fear. And I think as we worship and as we reflect on this, I think that's one of the most valuable things that we can think about, is for many of us, fear is crippling. We, we, right now, you just can't move. You're stuck. You don't know how to move forward because of how scared you are, because of the anxiety, not about today, but about tomorrow. And as you give that up to God, and he says, just deal with today. Just seek my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
we can be grateful for that and worship him for that. For those of us who say, I don't even know how to do it. I don't know how to get through it without all these things that I use to constantly cope with it, to distract myself from it and to, to mask it. Then he says, I'm still your God. But the more you trust in me, the more you let go of those things, the more you'll see freedom in that. Let's pray and worship and spend some time reflecting on this, I think. Father, I am so grateful for who you are. I'm so grateful for how much you say don't fear because it makes me feel better that one of the things that I struggle with the most is something that you saw coming and you filled your word with reminders of why we ought to have confidence in you, Lord. God, I confess that, um, I think we all can confess that we have a, this thing on the horizon that we often are living towards and aiming for that isn't you and your righteousness. And our fear is rooted in really just a fear that we won't get that, that we won't reach that point, that life won't go the way that we're hoping it will go. And I pray that you would help us to let that go and seek your righteousness. Because if we expect you to be a God who makes our hopes and dreams come true, then, well, we've already probably learned that that won't happen. And so we either think that you're a failure or we realize that we have the wrong view of how life ought to be. I pray that as we worship you, that you give us a profound sense of gratefulness and that you would fill us with courage to trust you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. In John chapter 16, at the end of his prayer to his disciples, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is important because Jesus acknowledges that in this world we will have trial. Things will be hard. We will have reason to be fearful and to want to be anxious. And rather than ignore that, he acknowledges it. And he says, have peace because the good news is I've overcome the world. Not only am I the God who created the world, but when sin came in and, and almost ruined everything, I'm also the God who overcame the world and overcame that sin. Amen? God bless you guys. Have a great week.